Scripture this morning, Mark 4, 35 through 41. When y'all find it, just say amen. All right, I'm waiting for 70 amens. Okay, okay, okay. On that day, when evening had come, he said to him, to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You may be seated. If we would keep your Bibles open to Mark 4, we'll walk through this text. Uh, Verse by verse in a moment, but as we get ready to look at this text, I want you to think about with me um, the feeling of fear, Um, the feeling of of desperate fear. (laughs) Many of you know that that last year, almost a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, Jessica and I, family back home in Louisiana, uh, friends back home in Louisiana lost everything they had to the, the flood that occurred last year. M- most of our friends back home went through that, and we've visited Louisiana a couple times since then. And as you talk to those that in- endured that storm and went through that flood, the thing that you hear over and over is that in the midst of that, it, it happened so quickly that as they were getting in boats and being evacuated out of their homes, they're staring at everything that they own uh, being ruined, washed away literally by the waters of the flood and the, the, the feeling that they describe as just one of, of desperate hopelessness. There's, there's nothing you can do. The, the, the flood is so strong and so quick and moving with such power that you just watch everything that you've built uh, in, into your home and into your family just be swept away and there's, you're just desperate. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Many of you know with fires, uh, if, you've, if you've been through that, unfortunately, or had family that have dealt with the, a home burning, uh, Jessica's grandparents this year lost a home to a fire. And, and it's the same feeling. You're watching as your, your home goes up into flames, and, and you can't do anything about it. It, it. it just happens. It's spiraling out of control, and, and you're just watching it unfold before your eyes. And in our text this morning, I think you get a bit of that, that, that feeling when you see the disciples, but, but the, the feeling is heightened by the realization that not only their stuff, their material possessions, but their very lives are about to be taken, and there's nothing they can do about it. They're, they're incredibly desperate for something, because in that moment, they're, they're watching these waves crash into the boat, and there's nothing they can do about it. Their very lives are about to be taken, and they're desperate. And, and that feeling of, of desperation, of a fear, of, of, of helplessness, I think is a bit of, of what we can see setting the tone for the text today in the, the situation that the disciples were in, the apostles with Jesus. 
little bit of recap as we, as we kind of backtrack and get us to where we are in Mark this morning. If you've been with us, then this will be just a refresher. If you haven't been, then maybe this will help to catch you up where we're at. We've been studying through the book of Mark. And to this point, Mark has been very much fast-paced to the cross. You see this in the use of his word immediately. Almost every text we've seen, the word immediately. Immediately this happened in him. Immediately they did this. Or immediately Christ did this. He's getting us to the cross. He wants to get there quickly. But along the way, we see miracles of Jesus. Teachings of Jesus. Uh, we've seen Jesus do incredible things. And we've seen different responses to Christ. I mean, his followers, the disciples, have left everything that they know, everything that's normal to them, and followed after Christ. On the other hand, you have conspirers who want to kill him and even uh, are so desperate to kill him that they team up with their worst enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together, arch enemies, because they want to destroy Christ. Uh, And and, in between those two spectrums, you have his relatives, his own family, who uh, think that he's out of his mind, he's crazy, he's lost his mind, and they go from Nazareth uh, to Capernaum to kidnap him and bring him back home so that he won't hurt himself or destroy the family name. Because they think he's out of his mind. And then you have uh, people that are following, masses, crowds of people that are following him because they want what they can get from Jesus. They want a miracle in their life or a, uh, their, their family member to be healed. And so these crowds are pressing in around him. And then most recently in, 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 in the story that Mark's been weaving together for us, we have the teachings of Christ. Specifically four parables that we've studied over the course of two weeks where Jesus is teaching them about this kingdom. Remember, Jesus, we're introduced to him in Mark chapter 1, and he's teaching that the kingdom of God has come near. And then you see all these miracles that Jesus has been doing, and then he's circling back in the last two weeks. We've seen him elaborating on what it means that this kingdom has come near. What is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? And we've seen different responses to that teaching and and the way that the crowds are responding. This morning, and in the next few weeks, Mark's going to shift gears again. And we're going to be going away a little bit from what Jesus has been saying to focus on what Jesus is doing. So we've seen the authority of Christ in his teachings, in these parables of the kingdom. We're about to see the authority of Christ in his actions, in his acts. And we see this as Jesus is a great miracle worker. This morning, specifically, we see his authority over nature. That he can calm literal storms. In the next few weeks, we're going to see that he has authority over demons. He heals this uh, Gadarean boy of, uh, of demon possession. He has authority over sickness. He's going to heal an, a woman with the issue of, of bleeding. And then finally, he has authority over death when he raises Jairus' daughter uh, from being dead. And so we see Jesus' authority in his actions and the things that he's doing. This morning, specifically, we're going to focus in on his authority over nature. That is, he's been teaching. He's not just saying these things and expecting folks to just believe them. Um, blindly, as Josh told us a moment ago, he's going to actually show us, he's going to demonstrate to us this authority through his actions. So a couple or three, I guess, general notes before we dive into the text, kind of three general observations of this text before we dive in. Number one, note the historical accuracy here. So this is not a a make-believe story. It's not a parable like he's been teaching in parables. It's not a a myth or mythology. Uh, This is actual... uh, like true and happened uh, circumstances and, and story here. The, 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 the descriptive details in this story show us that it's, that it's actual history. I mean, think about this. The precision that Mark is writing with. Uh, he's demonstrating that he's telling a story from an eyewitness account. I mean, you see this in the details, right? Like, so verse 35, he remembers the time of the day. It's evening. 
Verse 38, he remembers the place where Jesus has laid down on the cushion. And then again in verse 38, he he locates the cushion. The the cushion is in the stern of the boat. All of these details, they speak to the historical reliability of the text. Why is that? Well, because they don't add anything to the text. There's no character development in these details. There's no plot twists or, or plot building in these details. They're simply details that come about as an eyewitness, Peter, Peter's Mark's main eyewitness, recounts this story to him. And I think there's some confidence that we can take in that in the Word of God. That's very different from the legends and myths of ancient time. They wouldn't have had these details in them. So it speaks to the historical reliability, accuracy of the text. But there's another thing that speaks to the reliability of the text, and that's that these apostles, these disciples, are pictured as as less than flattering here. In mythology, in legend, uh, the, the heroes of the story, the writers of the story are often those um, that are telling the story. And you wouldn't go and tell on yourself like this. In the, in the text, in verse 40 specifically, these apostles look like a bunch of goofballs that have a lack of faith. They're not trusting the Lord. If you're making this story up or if this is fiction or if you're weaving together a legend or a myth, you leave the embarrassing stuff out, right? It speaks to the historical reliability of the text. Second general observation, God is in control here. I think you see that throughout this narrative, throughout this this story. God is the maestro in the text that's orchestrating all of these details. He's the one that's leading them. He's the one that's guiding them. He's the one that's brought the storm. Uh, And so he receives glory when their faith is strengthened, when his name is lifted on high. And so I think think you see that kind of as a general observation. God's in control in this text. All the movement of the text, text is coming from what God is doing. And then kind of third general observation that I'll make before we dive into the text uh, this passage has often been misused and misinterpreted and even abused in the church and in teaching and Bible studies. I think so often this text is preached and like the point, the takeaway, like the, the pound the pulpit moment and the amen moment in the text is that, you know, Jesus will calm all of your storms, right? Like you see the power of Jesus here. He has the ability to calm storms. And so if you trust him, he'll calm your storm. That's not the point of the text. While it is true that Jesus has all power, Jesus has authority over nature, and Jesus has authority over every sphere of our life, that is true. That's not the primary focus of this text. I'll give you a hint. The primary focus of the text is given to you in verse 41. Who is this then? That even the wind and sea obey him. Remember, Mark is writing this. He's demonstrating to us the authority of Christ. He's done so in the teachings of Jesus. Now he's moving into the actions of Jesus. And his point is to show us that Christ has all authority. And so because God is sovereign, he knows the things you're going through. He knows the outcomes of the things you're going through. He may not calm your storm, friends. But the point of the text, the primary focus of the text, is that even if he doesn't, the one who has all authority and all power is with you. That's, the, that's the, the driving force behind this text. That's the takeaway. He's promised to never leave you. He's promised to never forsake you as his child. He is with you and he has all authority. You can see how these two interpretations, the outcomes of them are different, right? One, if you're saying, if you're preaching that Jesus has all authority and he will calm your storms if you'll just have faith then what about the storm of infertility? We've been struggling with it for six or seven years and we're praying that God would would calm this storm in our life and provide a child for us and he doesn't. We'll begin to doubt God's goodness or you begin to doubt God's uh, power. Maybe he doesn't have authority over all things. 
You can see where that's a problem. But if on the other hand, if we're, if we're saying that this text is meaning for us, the, the point of this text is that Jesus has all authority, and even if he doesn't calm our storm, he's with us. Do you see how the outcomes of those interpretations are very different? So this morning, with those observations in mind, let's dive into the text together. Six observations, six points, if you will. Uh, I've put a handout in your bulletin. I like to do that from time to time when we have a lot of points. I don't want you to feel bogged down or to feel like it's a, a lecture or a classroom where you've got to take notes. So I try to give that to you. If it's a help to you, use it. If it's not, you can just throw it away. But six points, observations from the text that inform our theology, our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and also how we live, our actions, how we trust the Lord, how we live out the Christian life. So number one, God is sovereign. See the circumstances of our lives. Look at verse 35 through 37 again. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And the text starts out, on that day... And I think it's important for us because the text is uh, starting by giving us some bearings on what day that is, right? It's given us an, an indication of when this took place. That day in the text was the same day that began by Jesus being accused by the Pharisees of being in league with Beelzebul. You remember that? We studied it a few weeks back. That they, they accused him and all these miracles that he's doing uh, as being the power of Satan, so that's how that day started. And that day continues by his mother and his brothers coming from Nazareth to take him back, uh, almost kidnap him so that he won't destroy the family name or harm himself physically. So even his own family didn't trust him, didn't believe him. And so that's how that day continued. And then that day is the same day that Jesus went out at evening time and was teaching by the Sea of Galilee. The four parables that we've just walked through. Why do I point that out? Why is that important for us? Well, that day had been a tiring day for Jesus. He was exhausted. You can imagine the toll that this must have taken upon Christ. The, the, the physical and mental exhaustion of, 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 of meeting needs and caring for people and teaching people on top of the fact that his own family didn't believe him and wanted to take him back. On top of the fact that the religious elite of that day thought he was in league with Satan. Why do I make that point? Well, for us, it's taken us four weeks to cover this day for Christ. And I think we can lose sometimes the, the magnitude of what's been going on on this day and, and forget that Jesus was, at the end of this day, exhausted. It had not been four weeks for Jesus. It had been a few hours. And this is one doozy of a day. You can imagine the fatigue, the exhaustion that he's dealing with. And there's nothing unusual here in the, in the text. He's tired. He's exhausted. They already had a boat ready. We know that from the text that we've been studying through. And so it was time to go. And he says to them, let us cross to the other side. The Greek word used here uh, that Jesus says, let us cross the other side, the let us, it demonstrates urgency. Perhaps Jesus had hit the wall, as runners like to say, and he couldn't go on anymore. He was physically just exhausted. And so he tells them, let's go. We're going to the other side. It's time for us to cross the sea and to get away from the crowds, the masses of people that were pressing in around him. And so what I think we see here, though, is that even as Jesus is exhausted, he's fatigued, he's had uh, an incredible day. He's already thinking of what was next. You see, because what he's talking about here and going to the other side, he knew that on the other side was the region of the Gerizines where he would meet a demon-possessed boy who desperately needed him. 
And even in his fatigue, even in his exhaustion, he's thinking about that boy on the other side that needed him. And so they hoisted their sails. They begin the five-mile trip across the Sea of Galilee. The text continues, and it says there were other boats with him. And again, we mentioned earlier, these are just details. There's no theological significance here necessarily. These are other boats. And it's noteworthy, though, that even in the, the day that Jesus has had and all the exhaustion of the day, the fatigue that he's dealing with, the, him wanting to be away from the crowds, he can't even get away in a boat, that there's a trail of now followers in boats that are going with him across the sea. Once in the boat, Jesus falls fast asleep. And in verse 37, everything changes. It says, a great windstorm arose. And the word in the Greek here that's used is, for this storm is, is hurricane-type winds. Like incredibly strong weather, abnormal weather. This wasn't just a simple storm. This wasn't a storm that they were used to seeing. You see that the details in the text. The waves so large that they were breaking into the boat. The boat had taken on so much water that it was already filling. They were, they were desperate. They, they were seeing their lives flash before their eyes, if you will. They were hopeless in the midst of this storm. We know that it's not a normal storm because of their reaction, right? Remember, what are the occupations of the majority of these men? They're fishermen. Where do fishermen do their jobs? On the sea. These were professional seamen, men that were very familiar with the waters. They knew what a storm on the Sea of Galilee was like. They had faced it many times as they were uh, in this occupation of being a fisherman. They would have been used to normal storms. And so something like this that set this kind of panic into their hearts, this wasn't normal. This wasn't just a normal storm. And again, I think you missed that by, by just, just reading through the text. This was an extravagant storm. When we think about the application in our own lives, just a question for us this morning. Who led them into this storm? Whose idea was it? <laughs> it was Jesus. It was Jesus that said, let us go to the other side. It was him that wanted to get in the boat and to begin to cross the sea. This was not accidental. This storm didn't catch Jesus off guard. And though uh, Christ was sleeping here in the, the, the stern of the boat, he was well aware of what this night held for these disciples. He was well aware of the storm that was coming and was about to wreck this little boat that they were in. He was, he was very aware. And so this whole occasion initiated divinely by God. God's plan. It was God's storm. It was God's design. So would God lead us into storms? This is a question for us to wrestle with this morning. Would God, if he's leading the disciples here into a physical storm, a hurricane-type storm that could take their lives, would he lead us, his children, into storms, into trials? Yes. Yes. If it's for his glory and for our good, it's for the increase of our faith. Those times are times when we should grow and be sanctified in Christ. Yes, he would lead us into storms. And so we shouldn't throw up our hands in disbelief or throw up our hands in, in, in paranoia when we see storms come up. These circumstances that don't go our way, things that are overwhelming and seeming to crush us, instead seek God. See Him as wanting to teach us something in the midst of these storms, in the midst of our struggles and trials. We learn way more about God in the valley than we do on the mountains. It's in those times we feel totally crushed and abandoned that God is teaching us. Those moments of life where he does the greatest work on our hearts. So are you there today, friend? I know, I know in a room of this many people and in a church where we're going to have a second service and those people that there are folks in, in this room that are going through storms. 
I know from having conversations with many of you that you're going through storms and, and you're feeling like you're being slammed by the waves. You know, figuratively, this was a literal storm for them, but you feel as if your life is crashing in around you and you have no hope. No one's paying attention. No one cares. You feel as if your boat is about to sink. The world is crushing you. Ask God to teach you in these moments what he's doing. Trust his sovereign hand, but ask him to teach you. Why is he allowing this? Why is he sending this storm? What is it meant to sanctify you in? Second point, we've got to move quickly. Second point, Jesus is fully human. See him sleeping. Verse 38a, so the first part of verse 38. But he, that's Jesus, was asleep in the stern, or was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So pause the sermon for a second. Let's step over and do some theology one-on-one. The Bible teaches, and all of church history has has believed, so the church since its inception in, in Acts has believed that um, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. We say that all the time, but I don't want to m- miss that. Um, that. This text is demonstrating this to us, that Jesus has two natures united in one person, that he's of the same essence and substance as the Father. They are one, not, not similar in kind, but they are exact, similar, or exact same in substance and essence. He's got a, a nature that's one nature that he is the same as the Father. But separately, he's his own person. There's a, another identity there. So he's, there's two natures. There's a human nature in Christ. There's a nature like God and a nature as human. And we see this in Christ. He's fully God and fully man. And so that's what we mean when we say that he is the God-man. I think that's an ac- accurate description. That's a way to describe Christ, that he's God and he's man. There's one difference, though, from us. In his human nature, he doesn't have sin. There's no sin nature. Christ didn't sin by committing sins, and he didn't have a sin nature that was inclined to uh, sin or to commit uh, acts of treason against God. He's fully God, fully human, but without sin. And this text demonstrates both of these beautifully to us. We see emphasized here, he's fully human. How do we see that? Well, he's asleep on a pillow in a boat. And why is he asleep on a pillow in a boat? Well, Jesus, like any human, needed sleep. He needed to rest. He was exhausted, he was fatigued, and he needed a nap. And that's not the only time we see evidence of Jesus' humanity. If you go through the Gospels, Matthew two, uh, 4, verse 2, he's hungry. Jesus is, is having hunger pains, and he wants food. Uh, Mark 3, verse 5, he's angry. You see that in the text, he's, he's angry. In John 11, verse 35, he's uh, weeping with emotion. That his heart was breaking, he's shedding tears. Jesus has emotions. And in all of the Gospels, he dies on a cross. What more evidence of his humanity than the fact that he died? It's all teaching us that Jesus is fully human. In this case, he's exhausted. It's showing us his humanity. He's asleep on a boat in the middle of hurricane-like winds. I don't know many of you have spent much time on a boat. But even in a, in a choppy water on a lake, unless a sea, you can imagine being asleep in a boat. That's not an easy thing to do. And this is a hurricane-type situation with huge waves that are crashing over into the boat. You can imagine the way this boat was just going up and down, and Jesus is asleep. He's physically exhausted. But there's something else at work besides the fact that Jesus is just tired. I think we see this in the text, and I think we learn from Christ in this church family. That not only was he tired and asleep, but he had complete trust in the providence of his Father, Complete trust in his father that he knew he had been sent to this earth with a work, with with a job to be done. And he knew that he would die up on a cross to take on the sin of the world. And he knew that nothing could thwart or detour that 
uh, plan and purpose of God. Nothing, not even the storm, was going to keep that from happening. He had complete trust in the providence of God. And the irony here is that veteran seamen, veteran fishermen that lived their lives on this, this sea were terrified and a carpenter from Nazareth is sleeping peacefully. I think we should see that irony in the text. Lottie Moon, one of the most famous Baptist women to ever live, said this, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. And friends, if we could have that kind of confidence in our Father, that that we are immortal, nothing is going to harm us, not even a hair on our head is going to be touched outside of the providence and protection of a sovereign God, then that, that inspires, that gives us incredible boldness to live out our faith in this world. That's the kind of faith that Jesus had. That's why he's asleep in the middle of a hurricane. That kind of confidence in God's power over our lives. Do we trust God like that? Number three, we are faithless sinners See our distrust. And I say our because as we see the apostles, the disciples in this text, we can easily see ourselves. Look at verse 38b. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So so let's be fair, church family, that this is a completely normal and natural response to the situation that they're in. Right? They are looking around and it is certain for them that they're about to die. And they know... That there's someone on the boat who has incredible power, and he's not doing anything about it. So they, they have this question, and it's a completely normal response. I think it's a completely inappropriate action for these group of men that have seen the power of Christ. Why? Because they start by saying, teacher. If you go to Matthew's gospel, he records them as saying, Lord. And then Luke's gospel says that they call him master. Regardless of which one is used here, as these guys are recounting this story, They're probably shouting all three, right? They're probably shouting all three plus some other stuff. Uh, Wake up, man. Like, Jesus, Lord, Master, Teacher, do you see what's going on here? And here's the irony of this, is that all three of these titles that that the Gospels use are are, evidence that they're submitting to Christ, showing respect to Christ. They're signs of honor. Lord, Master, Teacher, they're all signs of submission. Yet, their next words show that they're completely not trusting, they're dishonoring or even disrespecting Christ. Do you not even care that we're perishing? Do you even care? They were dying and they thought they were dying and you're down here sleeping on on a pillow like you couldn't care less. They're not questioning his, his power. They've seen his power. They know what he's capable of. But they're questioning his care. They're questioning his love. They're asking, do you even care about us? Are you even concerned that we're going to die? These guys are desperate. They're up, in a, they're in a, up against a dire situation, and they, they literally think they're about to die, and so they lash out in a rude lack of faith. That's not something we'd do, right? We, we would never, we'd never do that, right, church family? I, I, think, I think as we begin to ask the Lord to apply this to our hearts, friends, we, we point fingers so quickly at these knuckleheads and, and, and want to say, man, how could you do that? How could you do that? You, you have Christ on the boat with you. But, friends, so often that's where we're at as well. As, as we begin to ask the questions and ask how this text applies to us, when we do that, honestly, when we come to the text and ask how many times have I been there, I think it should cause us pain to see ourselves right where the apostles are. Things aren't going their way. There's incredible struggle, incredible trial, incredible difficulty, persecution. Instead of trusting the one who has all power, we begin to doubt his ability or his concern, if he's even aware We feel life storms and we often conclude that we're alone. That not even God knows how I feel or what I'm going through. 
When overwhelmed, burdened, feeling crushed, we demonstrate a lack of faith. Friends, listen to me. When we do that, we are absolutely and totally wrong in those moments. God knows every wave that falls. He knows every hit or blow that we take. Every moment of suffering or persecution that we endure. He not only knows, but he feels the rate of your heart increase as your anxiety is dealing with that issue that's in your life. Friend, he knows the the, the sweat or the perspiration on your forehead as you're thinking about what lies in front of you. You can't see any light at the end of the tunnel and you feel like this issue is going to crush you. He knows everything. Every emotion in your heart, friends. And he cares. As Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, we quote Spurgeon often, he says this God is too wise to err, too good to be unkind. Leave off doubting him and begin to trust him, for in doing so, you will put a crown on his head. Friends, he's worthy of us crowning in every moment, not just when life's good, but even when life is terrible, and we feel like hell itself is being thrown at us. He's worthy of our trust. Will you trust him today? Trust that he has the power to calm your storms, but even if he doesn't, he's with you. Number four, Jesus is not only fully man, we see him asleep on a pillow, but Jesus is fully God. And I told you we see both of these, this dual nature, fully God, fully man in the text. So Jesus is fully God, see his authority over nature, verse 39. And he awoke, And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus' gracious humility on display here in this moment when they wake him up. He doesn't immediately at least uh, rebuke them, chastise them, discipline them for waking him up with their rude claims. And all the mamas in the rooms are like, yeah, I can testify that's a miracle in itself. Being awoken by uh, grumpy or grouching kids, uh, you know the feeling. And so the mamas are like, amen. And Jesus doesn't though. He doesn't rebuke them yet. He rebukes the wind and the sea. And he says, peace be still. And in that moment, like I think, I think as we focus in on this, the, the, the statement from Christ here, there's no magical statement here from Jesus. He just simply commands nature and it responds. He didn't roll up his sleeves and wave some magic wand and put on some theatrical display. He, he didn't recite some incantation. He simply said, quiet, be still. And that's it. To a hurricane. So, friends, I feel like we've heard this text so many times that we missed the gravity of this. To a hurricane, Jesus just said, Quiet, be still, like you would to an unruly child. And even more impressive, like a compliant child, the storm obeys. That's incredible. That's incredible. The rebuke here, the word rebuke, says uh, in the text in the Greek, means to censor. It's the same word that, Greek, uh, that, that Jesus used in the Greek when he silences the demons. When the, when the demons begin to speak and Jesus says, silence, and they're, they're hushed. That's the same way he talks to the storm. He says, be still. And in the Greek, that idea carries with it the idea of being muzzled like a dog. And so uh, maybe a little better way for us to understand this would be uh, Jesus saying, be still and stay still. The response, though, from the wind and the waves are immediate because their master has spoken. He's commanded them to not only be silent, be still, but to Continue in that state of stillness. Can you picture it? I think, I think, I think that, that's what, as we walk through this text, if you could just picture this, the eerie silence as the waves one moment are rolling into the boat and the boat is about to capsize as it goes over these huge waves and the next moment it's silence. 
You ever seen water that's so still it's like glass? And as you look at it, you can see a reflection in it. That's this water. There's no water more calm than the water that Christ says, be still to. And it's silence. Can you imagine that transition as the disciples are standing there? Can you imagine as they begin to look at each other with wide eyes and gulp like, who is this? That he just commanded a hurricane type storm and it stopped immediately. Imagine this. And we see Jesus' full deity on display here, friends. When you can speak to weather and it responds to you, you're God. And Jesus just commanded waves and wind to be halted with two Greek words and it obeys. Friends, the conclusion for us then this morning is that Jesus is God. And when he speaks, even nature has to obey. That's incredible. Number five. God knows how to increase our faith. So see trials and difficulties as tools for our sanctification. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you, have you no faith? Have you still no faith? In Jesus' reply, we see two questions. And they sort of contain in them this, this mild rebuke. He doesn't go on lecturing them for a, an extended period of time, but he, he asks, why are you so afraid? Question number one. Question number two, have you still no faith? In other words, this storm was for the purpose of your discipleship. It was for the purpose of making you more like Christ, and you missed it. You missed the opportunity to have your faith increased. You failed. In the eye of the storm, rather than trusting and focusing on the one who you've seen to have power, instead you accuse him. Of not even caring or loving you. And unfortunately, this is not the last time that these disciples will do this, right? We see this throughout the Gospels in chapter 7, chapter 8, three times in chapter 8, chapter 9. We see these disciples time and time again demonstrating a lack of faith. And the point, I think, for us this morning, as we look at the whole narrative of Scripture, is that these disciples will go on demonstrating a lack of faith. These apostles even, these that have left everything they know to follow Christ, they'll demonstrate a lack of faith until they see the resurrection. And at that moment, everything changes for them. And these guys that have been faithless will literally give their lives for the gospel of Christ to be made known. They go from having little faith to being uh, men of bold faith that will give their lives for Christ when they've seen the resurrection. So the question I think for us as we apply this text, why do we flinch? In a moment of suffering. Friends, why don't we demonstrate a lack of faith in the midst of trials? We have seen a resurrection. We have the full authoritative word of God. You've read the scriptures. You've seen the risen Christ. We have no excuse. We see that Jesus is all powerful. He killed death. We see that he has authority and he's all knowing and he has power over nature. He's fully God and he's fully man and he died on a cross to forgive sins. And then he raised from the dead to show that he's conquered death, hell, and the grave. What excuse do we have in the midst of trials? So when we think that he can't be trusted. When we think that in the moment of suffering that he doesn't know what's going on with what we're having to endure. Sure he can. Sure he knows. He has all authority. He has all power. When trials and difficulties come into our lives, there are opportunities for us to grow in Christ and to cling to Christ. Suffering are divine appointments for our faith to be strengthened, our, our trust and in, 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 in zeal in the Lord to be made sure. Struggles are tools for our sanctification. 
works, regardless of what's going on in our lives. And I don't want to minimize what suffering you may be enduring this morning. Whatever it is, He's with you if you are His. If you are a child of God's, if He's forgiven you of your sins and saved you, you are His this morning. and He is with you. So why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? So whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever you're suffering, whatever your trial is, let the words of Christ, feel the words of Christ this week. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Number six, who is Jesus? See the question we, uh, we all must answer, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So in the last verse, we saw two questions from Jesus, but that's not how the text, that's not how the chapter ends. The text doesn't conclude with Jesus' two questions. The text concludes with a question from his disciples. That's how this passage ends, that his disciples have on their lips the whole crux of the matter. The whole issue is hinging on. The pinnacle of this text is the question that they end with. Who then is this? That even the wind and sea obey him. Backtrack with me though. It says this, that they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear. This is incredible. And I'd I'd never noticed this in this text before. And so I, I pray this is a blessing for us this morning to see this in the text. Have you ever noticed in this very familiar story that a few moments ago, a few just literally a few moments ago, these disciples were filled with fear panicking, running down to the, to the stern of the boat to wake Jesus up because they literally think they're about to die. Why are they panicking? The storm. Why are they afraid? Why is their fear? The storm. And now it says in the text, look at the text with me, that they're filled with great fear, the text says. Why is that? Why are they filled with great fear now? Why is there a heightened sense of fear now? The storm has ceased, right? There's a calm, right? No, friends, the storm has just begun. And that's what I think is incredible about this text. The storm isn't over. It's just that it's not in the water anymore. The storm has moved from the water to the boat. (laughs) They're filled with great fear because God is in the boat with them. And it's causing a storm in their own hearts and minds. God, the one who has all power, is in the boat. See, the storm had immense power. And they had no control over the storm. But Jesus has infinitely more power. And they have even less control over him. The one who has all authority is in the boat. Friends, there's a huge difference. The storm doesn't love you. Feel the weight of this this morning, friends. If you're suffering, feel this text that the the storm doesn't love you, though it's powerful. But the one who has authority over the storm, the one who controls all things and is sovereign over nature, he loves you dearly. Think of the storm that's raging in their own hearts and minds right now. As they've just witnessed this incredible scene, their worldview is shattering Their plans for their lives that were so important at some point in their lives are now insignificant in the light of the fact that this one speaks to weather and it obeys him. Everything that they knew about their lives was changing. Everything in their understanding of reality was shifting and being turned upside down by this occasion. God is in the boat and everything changes. Danny Aiken says this in his commentary. The presence of God is far more frightening than the most destructive forces of nature. One can take your life, the other can claim your soul. In this moment, these guys that were in this boat realized that this storm was powerful, but this one controls the storm, and he's way more powerful. The storm can take my life, he can command my soul. 
And so this text ends with this, this, this question. Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Sadly, after seeing all the miracles that Jesus had been doing, he's literally uh, exercised demons from people. He's healed a man who was a paralytic. They've seen all these incredible miracles. And yet they're still asking the question, who is this? The demons knew. The demons have already confessed it in Mark's gospel. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And these guys will get it. These guys will get it, but not yet. When they see the resurrection, they'll get it. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, wrote a book that's gained a lot of attention several years ago, The God Delusion. And in that book, he recounts a conversation with well-known atheist Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell, an atheist himself, was at one time asked, what happens if you die and you find out that all your life you've been wrong about God and that he does actually exist? What happens then? And Bertrand Russell replies, I will say to him, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Friends, in light of a text like this, Bertrand Russell's excuse will not fly. It will not cut it. Friends, the evidence has been presented to us in the text this morning and it is overwhelmingly convincing that this one who commands the storms is the Son of God. And so we must answer the question today that these disciples are wrestling with in this last verse. Who is this one? Who is this one? He's the Christ. Will you put your confidence and trust in him today? Will you repent of sins and give him your life today to be one of his followers? You know, ask, ask him to forgive your sins and save you today. You see, fear is a natural part of the human experience, and we're wrapping up. And perhaps this morning, you're here today and you're fearful of what next week holds. You're here today and you're fearful of life in general because there's no light at the end of your tunnel right now. And you don't know how you're going to make it. Friends, that feeling of overwhelming burden and challenge this morning calls us to see in the text the one who has authority over all things. The winds that are howling, the seas that are crashing into your life right now calls us to see that there is hope on the horizon because there is one with us as believers who controls all things. So understand that in storms, afflictions, hardships, he's with you. And then friends, this morning, if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's not with you. I think that's the reality and that's the weight of this text. He's not with you. For us as believers, we have great hope in that. And that no matter what this world throws at us, we have Christ. Friends, this morning, if you don't know him, give him your heart this morning. Give him your life. Call upon his name this morning. Confess your sins. And the text says he'll be faithful to forgive us. Make us new creatures in him. Let's trust him, the one who controls all things this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you this morning that in the text, you've, you've clearly demonstrated to us that Jesus was your son, that you sent fully God, fully man to take on the sins of the world. So this morning, Father, we give you this time. We ask that you would convince us of this truth this morning by the power of your spirit. That for those in this room that, that have never trusted you and given their lives to you, that this morning they would do that. For the first time that they would repent of sins and put their faith and trust in you surrender their life to you. And then for those of us this morning in the room, Father, that do know you, that we have called upon Christ for salvation, help us to rest this morning in this truth, 
that you're with us no matter what life brings our way. Cause our faith to grow. Cause us to have confidence in the gospel this morning through your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.